namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami <clears throat> well, this is the continuing continuation of the talk Intuitive Awareness that uh, Lumpur Sumato gave at the Leicester Summer School uh, in uh, August of 2003. And uh, <clears throat> so he was talking about his um, uh, use of terms like intuition, thinking and feeling. People sometimes say, the law of karma isn't always true, is it? There are people who live very bad lives. They kill, are corrupt and dishonest, and yet they have beautiful homes, big cars, swimming pools, go to Monaco every year. They've got everything. But if we had to live within their minds, I don't think we would want it. All the stuff they get doesn't solve the problem. It's meaningless, really. I think all of us have experienced materialism to the point where we simply got tired of it. Just having more and better makes you more bored with it all, because you spend your life just trying to improve everything. The answer, then, is in the mind itself, in here. I'm referring to this intuitive awareness, mindfulness. Awakenedness is the kingpin, the axis, the real essence of the Buddha's teaching. And that's a very simple, imminent act, which is why I'm encouraging you to recognize it rather than trying to become somebody who is mindful, quote-unquote. As soon as you conceive yourself as somebody who is not mindful and has to become so, then you're holding to a view of mindfulness, which means you're not being mindful. Unless you're mindful that you're attached to a view of mindfulness. You can follow that? <coughs> so this is something that you have to find out for yourself, something you have to recognize. I can encourage and point that that is about the best anybody can do. Now the teaching to do good and refrain from doing evil is so basic in Buddhism it's kind of hackneyed. In Thailand, everybody says it. Every little kid recites, do good, receive good, do bad, receive bad. You hear it over and over again. And after a while, you don't want to hear it anymore. But it is pointing to a reality. Doing good, thinking good thoughts, taking up tranquility practices and developing positive qualities, if you really appreciate that way, have the right attitude towards it, then you feel happy. You develop bliss and beautiful mental experiences if you think good thoughts, filled with loving-kindness and compassion. Just thinking good creates happiness. Thinking bad thoughts, on the other hand, creates unhappiness. So it's very immediate. When I start worrying, immediately it's like being in hell. But if I look at the sun coming up or the beautiful gardens here, it's different. Geshe Gedun, uh, who was uh, Geshe Gedun Tarchin from the Lamrim Institute in Rome, <clears throat> Geshe Gedun and I were walking through the botanical gardens this morning and they looked incredibly beautiful. We were both awestruck by their beauty and it was a heavenly feeling. Then Geshe said, this is the Tushita heaven, so we are already in Tushita here. But just notice that this is the way it is. We can conceive of the Tushita heaven as being some kind of ethereal state, some kind of abstraction out there. But we experience these kinds of things here, like these gardens, when we open to the beauty. We can walk through the gardens worrying about what we're going to do when we get home and not get any joy or pleasure out of them whatsoever. 
maybe not even notice them, or we can open to them. Well, this uh, uh, point of uh, the mind being the most important thing is really the linch- linchpin of uh, Dhamma teachings. And uh, I'm sure even if um, uh, uh, you, uh, any of us who've um, maybe never felt that you've had uh, any particular amount of wealth or luxury in your life, uh, I'm sure all of us have known people or do know people who have got lots of money and are extremely unhappy and miserable and uh, disappointed. And uh, the um, <coughs> the... The, say the, the key piece of uh, of Buddhist training is to uh, be, uh, in a sense, finding happiness from liking what you get rather than getting what you like. That's uh, an easy way of putting it. So that that's how the in terms of uh, worldly thinking, there's the idea that uh, you like something, you want something, and you get it, and that makes you happy. But the the whole emphasis of Buddha Dhamma is in in shifting the attitude. So that uh, maybe liking what you get isn't a perfect way of phrasing it, but rather to be able to be open to to recognize that in this moment, this is what's here. And in that, in the moment, that quality of, of uh, say, receptivity and attunement, that brings a, a happiness with it. Uh, and as Ajahn Buddha Das would say, there's a, the worldly kind of happiness is getting what you want, but the, the, the superior kind of happiness or the, the transcendent kind of happiness is not wanting anything, but rather say that the mind is awake to the Dhamma, uh, the reality of things here and now, and so there's a quality, a fullness and completeness. There's not something that we have to get in order to be, uh, be complete. And then uh, speaking about um, wholesomeness and the relationship to, uh, from wholesomeness, the unwholesome and happiness, then this is also a very common theme of, of Lumpur Cha's teachings. He would say, um, everyone talks about doing good and refraining from, from harm, refraining from evil, but that which is be, beyond good and evil, people don't talk about that. So that was a, a common uh, thing that he, say, focused on, because there's a, a strong emphasis in Thailand of tambu, making merit, doing things that are wholesome and creating good karma. But uh, Lumpur Cha always tried to, to point beyond that and say, well, you know, Good is in and of itself is not good, as it says, as harm or badness, evil is not in and of itself evil. But the way that it works is that if we do good, if we cultivate wholesome qualities, just as Lumpur is describing here, if you think wholesome thoughts and cultivate kindness and and unselfishness and so on, then that that lays a ground, uh, uh, establishes the ground of contentment, of ease, of self-respect, if you like. So by keeping the precepts, by practicing generosity uh, and so forth, then you help the mind to be naturally calm and peaceful. There's a, uh, a, uh, a number of descriptions in the teachings where the Buddha uh, starts off by saying you know, that if, uh, if you live according to the precepts, if you practice sila, then there's no need to think, uh, may, I, may I feel um, self-respect, may I be f- free from remorse, because if you keep the precepts, you'll naturally be free from remorse. And one who's free from remorse, they don't have to think, may my body be relaxed and may my mind be at ease, because if you're free from remorse, then it's natural for the body to be relaxed and the mind to be at ease. And and then for the body to be at ease and the mind to be relaxed, there's no need to think, may I feel contentment, because it's natural for the mind to be content, to have sukha, happiness. If the mind is content, there's no need to think, may my mind be concentrated, because the happy mind is easily concentrated. And if the mind is concentrated, there's no need to think, May uh, knowledge and vision of the way things are, may insight arise because it's natural for the mind that is concentrated to give rise to 
to uh, insight, to knowledge and vision of the way things are. And for one who uh, uh, gives rise to knowledge uh, and vision of the way things are, there's no need to think, may my heart become um, dispassionate and detached uh, uh, and, and um, say, uh, free from, from bondage, because it's natural for the mind that sees things the way things are to, to not be attached, not to get <coughs> entangled. And one who is uh, dispassionate and detached, there's no need to think, uh, may I experience freedom, because for one whose heart is dispassionate and detached, then um, knowledge and vision of freedom and liberation naturally arises. So it's, a, it's a, a little teaching called liberation is a natural process, and so that it starts off with wholesomeness. And so that the, <coughs> so goodness is not good in and of itself, but it's good insofar as it creates the ground whereby the mind can awaken to the reality of things. Similarly, unwholesomeness is not intrinsically evil or bad, intrinsically wrong, it's just it, it, takes, it, it obstructs the conditions whereby the mind would establish contentment and, and ease, physical, physical well-being, mental well-being, so that uh, if, we are, if we are deceitful, if we are selfish, if we are aggressive, if we are conceited, uh, if <coughs> we are you know, proud and, and demanding, um, then <coughs> that creates a lot of agitation, confusion, a lot of self-concern. So you're, you're in an uptight state, uh, you are um, creating aggression and agitation, so the mind can't uh, focus, the body's not relaxed, the mind doesn't settle. And so that then those other conditions for liberation don't get, uh, don't get brought into being. So that it's, that's the, the, uh, the basis for the, the Buddha's teaching about wholesomeness and unwholesomeness, kusala and akusala. And Ajahn Chah would say that the point of, of developing goodness is not just to get goodness and keep it and own it, sort of be the owner of goodness, but rather you use goodness as a, a as a platform, as a basis, in order for the mind to awaken and for there to to uh, let go of of self view, let go of self concern, and to, as he would say, awaken to that which is beyond good and evil, which is um, uh, above cause and beyond effect. So to continue, one reason we like nature is because we can open to it and trust it. Nature is what it is. A tree is what it is, and nobody has made it. A human being has not created it. So things are just what they are in nature, and that gives us a sense of relaxation and trust. An artificial world that comes from the workings of the human brain is often produced for the purpose of making money, and is uh, dazzling, exciting, and stimulating, and that produces a, a different feeling, doesn't it? That is different from being in a place where nature is allowed to be dominant where there are just trees, flowers, mountains, and waterfalls. So Disneyland, not that I've ever been there, is different from the Leicester Botanical Gardens. This is just a reflection. You don't have to agree with me. It's a question of noticing how things work with you. You might be different. I don't know. What I'm saying is find out for yourself. See how things are for you. When you get caught up in worry, anxiety, mistrust, self-aversion, and so on, just step back and ask yourself, what am I doing? Intuition will then begin to take hold, and you will notice that you are creating negative thoughts and arouse negative emotion, and that arouse negative emotions. If you then say, I shouldn't do that, you're creating more negative feeling. No matter how much you punish yourself for being foolish, you'll just add to it. The very desire to punish and judge yourself will pile more negative feeling on top of that which already exists. Intuition, on the other hand, is non-judgmental. It just says, it's like this. 
Self-aversion, anxiety, worry, depression is like this. Then you stop analyzing states of mind and making them into something. You just recognize them. You just feel the kind of mood that hangs around you, the kind of grayness and dreariness. If you don't recognize the mood in its energetic form, everything you say will come out of that mood. You'll see the world and talk to everybody through that cloud and come across as bitter or anxious. By trusting in awareness, however, you'll see that the anxiety or self-aversion is what it is. And you'll also see that you're allowing it to do what it's meant to do, which is to change. It arises, it ceases. As you gain more in confidence, you'll see states of mind drop away. If you're patient and willing to receive them, they will do that. They'll drop away. And you'll feel peace of a kind that you perhaps didn't know was possible. A peacefulness that is not a tranquility that comes from shutting out irritating conditions, but is from non-attachment, letting things be what they are. Then any powerful emotion that dominates your consciousness, and which you accept, just drops away. What is left, to me, is like bliss. It's a real sense of being at ease, like letting go of a heavy burden that has been weighing you down. Just as you, as, just as you let it go, there is a sense of relief and bliss. This is the way it is when you're not lost in blind grasping. So speaking about uh, walking around in the gardens, uh, at the Leicester Botanical Gardens with uh, Geshe Gedun, and uh, in that description there, it reminded me of um, uh, an account of Samuel Beckett walking through a park in Paris with one of his friends. And uh, Samuel Beckett was a playwright, very well known, um, <coughs> and sort of famous for uh, his sort of um, plays like Waiting for Godot and... Um, uh, let's say his um, somewhat depressive attitude towards life. His his face was sort of deeply ploughed, creases, uh, and uh, and uh, was sort of written all over him. And so they're walking through this park in Paris, and this uh, this uh, uh, person he was walking with said, "Isn't it glorious? Isn't it beautiful? Doesn't a day like this just make you glad to be alive?" And Samuel Beckett said, "Yeah, well, I wouldn't put it quite like that." <laughs> The, the whole concept of being glad to be alive was not in Beckett's general way of expressing things. So he probably said it with an Irish accent as well. So, yeah, I mean, so that, um, uh, I think that the point also that Lung Po is making is that uh, not just sort of praising things that are unnatural, even though the garden's been planted by humans and the trees have been put there, <laughs> and not there, yeah, um, that there's a, a quality of of um, say relaxation that happens when we we are in the midst of an environment that hasn't been created, uh, particularly obviously, by by human hand, and uh, the <coughs> uh, again it varies from person to person, but um, the uh, 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 that experience of being say in a forest or out in the hills or, or looking out over the sea or something that when we we are experiencing the presence of the, those. Uh, those qualities that are not sort of formed or shaped by by, by humans, there is a, um, a a natural a, uh, a recognition or a realization of of that um, quality of of what is uh, say uh, superhuman or transhuman or beyond the, the, our ordinary our personal perspectives. That when we are surrounded by by people and things, the human constructions. Then it feeds essentially it feeds self view it feeds the sense of of me and who I am and, and who I'm with and what I'm doing and it, it in a sense uh, makes solid that 
the, the perceptions of self-view and the, the human framework for things. When you're standing by the sea and looking out over, over the water or in a forest and surrounded by trees and looking up at the stars at night, there's something that goes, oh, <laughs> because the, so we can see. And we, call, we have words for them like stars, but we didn't create them. We didn't put them in particular places. The, the, the shape of the trees and the, the, the form of the hills and the rivers, there's something that is deeply non-personal about that. So that uh, often what is most refreshing or delightful in that um, the opening the, the heart, opening the mind to um, the uh, sort of natural landscapes and forms is that, that in that moment, self-view has fallen away. We're not just using our ordinary personal reference points to, to sort of determine what's there and to, to relate ourselves to it, but that, that falls away and there's more that quality of, of wonderment, uh, that sense of, of uh, seeing that and realizing that dimension of our being that is, is not personal, that's not individual, that's not male or female or old or young or, or based on nationality and uh, age and, and so forth. So that um, <clears throat> there's a, uh, and also it's one of the, um, uh, in a sense, the basis of the forest tradition and why all our, our monasteries are in the countryside, pretty much all of them, and how they would often remind people in uh, in, uh, in Buddhist countries, in Thailand in particular, they would, in Dhamma talks, it's frequently said the Buddha was born in a forest, he lived in a forest, yeah. <clears throat> he spent his, his time teaching in the, training the monastic community in the forest, and he passed away in the forest. You know, it's like, there's a clue there that, that, that uh, that's the, the favored in, environment, and that that is, say, conducive to that sense of a, bro- a broadening of vision and a, a, a kind of letting go of the ordinary limits of, of, sort of personal concern. Also, in terms of, of um, uh, the wholesome and the unwholesome, going back to that for a moment, one of the, um, uh, one of the, the comments that Lumpo Cha made, that, uh, he, and he was, he was a genius at coming up with these little Dhamma nuggets, uh, he'd say, everyone wants happiness, but nobody likes to create the causes of happiness. Nobody wants suffering, but everyone likes to create the causes of suffering. So put that on your fridge if you, if you have one. <laughs> that, uh, so that, uh, and uh, obviously it's a bit of a sweeping statement, but it, uh, I feel it's also very helpful, very uh, powerful and useful reflection because we like to think of ourselves, me first. I want some of that for me. This is my space. You know, this, is, this is what I want. No, you can't have that. That's mine. That's how we tend to react. Like, uh, if I get what I want, then that's a good thing. I don't get, if I don't get what I want, that's a bad thing. Oh, I'm disappointed. I didn't get what I wanted. Bad. So, <clears throat> we, but we've created the causes of that unhappiness because of, of attachment to self-view. Like if we're focused on me getting what I want equals happiness, if we believe in that, then when I don't get what I want, then when I don't get what I want, then that's unhappiness. So we create the causes for unhappiness by buying into self-view. He says, no one likes to, uh, to um, create the causes of, of happiness. It's like that's letting go of self-view, letting go of, of uh, self-centered habits, letting go of, uh, of uh, the uh, instincts of uh, me and my, my opinions, my thoughts, my stuff, my, my feelings, and, um, and living in a, in a restrained way, living in a, a way that is not following impulses or reactions, but living in a way that is, is mindful, which takes work. Uh, and it takes a lot of effort. 
And then he says that people like creating the causes of, of unhappiness. The, we like to follow our desires. If we, if we feel aversion or up, uh, up, being upset about something, we like to express that. Oh, I hate that. That's awful. That's dreadful. How could you do that? We enjoy that aversion or getting things that we like and so that we don't realize we're creating the causes for unhappiness. So that uh, I feel that um, just in that way of expressing things and we're talking about um, doing good, recognize, yeah, that's work. <laughs> doing good is hard work uh, and doing, doing harm is, is generally easy work. <coughs> so that, uh, and again, it reminds me of a, um, uh, a story Lumpur Sumedha told when he was a, a very newly ordained monk. He'd been with Ajahn Chah for a little bit and then went off to practice by himself on a, a mountain in Sukhanakorn province called uh, Pupek Mountain. And uh, he and, and another couple of monks lived up in this old ruined Khmer temple up on the top of the hill. And they had to go down the hill with their arms around down into the villages and then come back uh, and then climb up the hill at the end. And uh, to Lumpur Sumato's surprise, uh, about halfway up the hill, there was a province, northeast Thailand, but there was a little sign in English that said, doing good is like climb this hill. <laughs> and he, I don't think he ever found out who put it there, you know, where it came from. But it's like, why is that in English? But there it was. And he said, that's right. Because <laughs> it was coming back from the village. It was already up 7 o'clock in the morning. It's getting pretty hot. You've got to climb, climb, climb. And so you're pretty sweaty and tired by the time you get to the top. But he said, yeah, doing good is like climbing this hill. <clears throat> in the Pali, we chant Pachatang Veditabo Vinyui to be experienced individually by the wise. In other words, you can only know for yourself, and it's very simple. We tend to project Dhamma onto ideals, and it gets beyond us. We cannot all come here and live permanently in this Tushita heaven of Leicester. Maybe some people who live in Leicester don't think of it as Tushita Heaven. The Tushita Heaven of Leicester. We're lucky to get six days out of the year here, and we appreciate it. It's certainly something I appreciate. But if I go away thinking, I can only be happy in Leicester Botanical Gardens, I'm a fool, aren't I? I've been in India this past year, which is the most interesting country in the world, as far as I'm concerned. I really love that place, because it is such a challenge. Everything is out in the open. The people live more or less on the streets and are very friendly. So it's a country in which you feel an aliveness. At least I found it so. If you make the effort to smile at people, they generally smile back and seem delighted that you're interested in them. They have a lot of poor people there, of course. But even the beggars, even those that, that tend to be irritating, have a good sense of humour and you can joke with them. You do see quite shocking, shocking things also in India, in contrast to our part of the world, which we've tidied up so nicely. Britain is actually a very nice country to live in, though I don't think everybody realizes it. It isn't perfect, of course, but it's better than most places, and I appreciate living here. When I go to India, I don't expect it to be like this. Yet India offers another way of looking at life. There I appreciate the sense of the sacred and the quality of the people. In England, there is very little eye contact. People generally look away, but in India, they just stare at you, and you can just stare at them. <laughs> Nobody minds. There isn't the fear of, in India of looking and receiving each other, so it feels much more open there, which I quite like. 
When receiving India from that intuitive position, everything belongs. Any feeling of foreignness or fear becomes more conscious, but it doesn't motivate or drive you anymore, and you can let it go. Then you find a sense of ease, of openness and receptivity, and an interest in the people and the things that you experience. That is it's very true. It's uh, in India, the sitting on a train or in a in a uh, in a, uh, a cafe or on a bus or something, and someone just just come up and sit and look at you, and they and you say hello. And they go, oh, no, I'm just looking, you know, like you're a shop window. You know, this you're an interesting thing, so that you're it's totally appropriate to look at you. You know, you're the most interesting thing that's happened all morning. So why should why shouldn't you be looked at? I mean, to think that you shouldn't be looked at is very strange, because of course you're you're an odd thing. And so, that, uh, so it can be very disconcerting, if, particularly if you're English. <laughs> you know, we invented the stiff upper lip, and, uh, the ability to, to sit on a sit on a train and just not even hide behind a not even hide behind a newspaper or a book, but just sometimes on the London Underground when the train stops between stations, you have two hundred people in a in the underground carriage and it's completely silent. Nowadays, people have got their uh, headphones in, but uh, even before uh, before that, often there'd be nobody talking with anybody else. It's just <laughs> frozen. It's uh, it's very very different in well, it's, it's certainly in Asia and, and in uh, in Europe too. There's a uh, yeah, people uh, uh, gleefully sort of engaging with each other and chatting and moving around and a whole lot of activity. But uh, England is is very very restrained. I think the karmic result of being on a crowded island. So we. Can We've developed the ability to sort of wall, wall the world off. But uh, India is a great counterpoint to that because, as he said, everything is, is very open and that you can uh, let, your, let your barriers down and not have to be so defended there. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? That's the end of that particular talk. Okay. <laughs> uh, the next uh, talk is called The Sense of Timelessness. And this is from the next year. This is the 3rd of August 2004. So we just hop forward a year. I find that time goes <laughs> I find that time goes by very quickly. A year just went by. I find that time goes by very quickly. I've been in the UK now for 28 years, and I look around and think, why is everyone so much older? <laughs> then I look in the mirror. Hmm. This investigation of time, I think, is a very important reflection, because we are a time-bound society. We really believe in the reality of it. We, we believe our age, the sense of history, and the continuity of time. And we believe that we have been born. We have this sense of going through the years, and yet in some way remaining the same. We just assume we're the same person throughout this span we call our lifetime. In awareness, however, we realize there's no such thing as time, and that all we do is project onto the experience of now. That is what we call time. In reality, there's only right now, only the here and now. This is where consciousness operates. Breathing is happening right now. Feeling through the body and the senses is now. The thinking process is now. 
We can remember what we were thinking yesterday, but even that thought is a memory in the present. Breaking down the assumptions about oneself and the cultural habits one has in regard to time, I found very helpful learning to trust in awareness and recognizing that liberation is now, freedom is now, Nibbana is now. Rather than having this perception of practicing now in order to attain liberation in the future. The point is, we create the perception of past, present and future, birth and death, beginning and ending. First we create the words to describe experience, and then we become attached to those words, often not noticing the reality behind them. So we create ourselves as personalities, and we create England, and we create our positions in society. When Christians ask whether we have a creator God in Buddhism, we say, well, not exactly, because I am the creator of the world, which can sound a lot like megalomania, being kind of inflated or thinking too much of yourself. Not exactly because I am the creator of the world. Uh, if one is claiming to be the ultimate creator, that is a kind of madness, isn't it? But in terms of the reality of this moment, we are the ones who are creating it. We are projecting our habits and feelings onto this moment. So in terms of reflection and awareness, we call this, quote, the creator of the world, unquote. I found also that just through the exploration of my own memories, just through remembering things of the past, I could arouse emotion in myself. When I started developing insight meditation years ago in Thailand, I noticed how angry and indignant I could become over past events in my life, events that had nothing to do with the conditions I was experiencing at that time. I could wind myself up simply by obsessing my mind with memories of unfair treatment that might have happened 20 or 30 years before. There I was in a Buddhist monastery in Thailand, still angry, and I could maintain that anger by continuously remembering and dwelling on the memory. In terms of Dhamma, in terms of all conditions are impermanent, I realized that memories simply arise and cease, and that if I keep holding on to them, I can feel the anger and resentment again and again. By feeding memories, I can just get as angry as I did when those events originally took place. So this is a very common experience that Lumpur is, is talking about, um, that uh, we believe in our age. We say, I am 62, or I am 30, I am 50, I am 75. And that's what we, we are when we sort of ask for a number uh, and so forth. But our subjective sense is that we are, we are this age. And, that, um, the, uh, and so that our, our felt sense is very much around uh, the present moment. And uh, this is a very, very common experience that we, we have this, this sort of two different qualities of time that are, that are, are the sort of form of our life. We, we feel this sort of average, kind of independent adult age, and then we have this body that looks out of the mirror in the morning and goes, Ooh, what happened to you? And uh, I was, uh, <laughs> um, my mother uh, told me that um, when I was about to have my 40th birthday, and uh, um, the, uh, sh she was walking down the street in the local town in, in Kent with my sister uh, in Maidstone. They were out to, to go to the shops to buy a present for me. And, uh, <clears throat> and apparently, uh, I forget whether it was my sister or my mother who told me the story, but they were walking along and my mother just stopped in her tracks on the pavement and said, how can I possibly be buying a, a present for, a, for his 40th birthday when I'm only 28? <laughs> it, was, it was just kind of... That was her felt sense that she was always 28. And then another time, uh, she got um, 
she she was a very good driver. She was an army driver in the Second World War, and so she was quite uh, quite skilled um, uh, looking after vehicles and uh, and driving at speed. And uh, anyway, one one morning she was um, she'd been off to drop another of my sisters off at the airport about five o'clock in the morning, and she was driving back along the motorway, and she had a a, a tire blowout, and um, <clears throat> the and so she. Uh, she was okay. She was she's going pretty fast, but she she pulled over and um, and then uh, to her surprise, a policeman pulled up and uh, he said, "Oh, I, I, I saw your car, um, your your wheel go out from the other carriageway of the motorway, so I thought I'd loop around and see that you're okay." And, uh, and he said, I, "I saw you handled that pretty well, but uh, um, can I have a look at your license?" And uh, <clears throat> and she said, "Certainly." So she uh, uh, she gave him her license, and he said. Uh, you know, Mrs. Horner, um, uh, uh, I, I clocked you at about 90 miles an hour there. And a woman of your age should... So I know you're driving... You, you obviously you know how to handle a car, and you, can, you dealt with the blowout fine, in, in a fine way, but you know, a woman of your age should think twice before driving at that kind of speed. What do you mean, a woman of my age? And she said, well, you, you are 74. <laughs> and uh, again, she was telling the story. Like, oh, that's quite old, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, for for all of us, that sense of uh, of uh, our our felt impression of the present is one thing, and then the passing of the years and the and the, the, the date of our birth and such like is is another. And uh, this point that Lumpur makes here, and as he's looking uh, at this in this whole Dhamma talk, uh, he would often give uh, give teachings about this, and one of the most striking phrases that he used is um, in relationship to talking about time uh, was when he was giving a Dhamma talk here at Amravati many years ago he said time is an illusion caused by ignorance full stop that's what time is time is an illusion caused by ignorance so our thinking mind goes yeah but 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 yeah it's it's 637 and uh, yeah <laughs> The uh, it, it's a a, a Monday evening, and uh, this is the the date, the time. This is this is the real world, but coming from the contemplative perspective, coming from that point of of uh, the uh, say intuitive awareness that the mind awake, that yeah, time, the the changing of the numbers or the moving of the of the hands or the changing of the light, yeah, the conditions uh, are continually changing, but time. What we call time is is an illusion that's formed together out of perception, thought, memory, language. We say time, <laughs> and so that because it's such a sort of a shared convention or a shared illusion, we make it real. I say it is Monday, the twenty fifth of March, and is now uh, six thirty eight in the evening, and so on. But. Uh, if we we are looking at our experience of of reality, even using a word like the moment is a bit of an intrusion, because they say that there is this moment as compared to other moments. But in terms of of uh, the sort of realization of of, uh, of dhamma, there is, there isn't. There's only one moment. <laughs> there, there's this. So I find that actually when I'm giving meditation instruction or giving reflections. Uh, I I shy away from using a term like the present moment or or, or this moment, but rather I use a, a term like the present reality, something like that. 
um, to uh, embody or to to uh, say indicate that quality of this isn't just a moment like one little sliver of time with a huge past before and a, and a huge future after it. It's not just like one little bit. It's the whole. <laughs> it's the whole thing. Is is this uh, this present reality? And there's a a very uh, potent teaching from the the um, Chinese. Uh, Buddhist canon for the Sutra of Huineng, the, the Sixth Patriarch Sutra, which um, one one passage of it that uh, uh, Alan Watts quotes in one of his uh, one of his books, and that um, I like to reflect on a lot is: um, in this moment, there is no thing that comes to be. In this moment, there is no thing that ceases to be. Thus, in this moment, there is no birth and death to be brought to an end. Therefore, is this moment the absolute peace? And, that, and even though it is only just this moment, there is no limit to this moment. And herein is eternal delight. So, in this moment, there is no thing that comes to be. There's processes, there's perceptions that come and go, but there's no thing so that we can say, there, here is a book, or here is a chair, here is a person. Um, but that is a a convenient fiction. There is more. There's booking, or there's chairing, there's personing. That the patterns of perceptions come together in this particular form for a particular, uh, say, span of of, um, of uh, say of events, and then it, it stops coming together in that. Uh, and the word book doesn't apply to it anymore. But before this was tree, and then it got chewed up, made into paper. And the ink came from a, uh, an ink factory. Put it together, and it's don't take your life personally. It's a book, but there'll come a time when all the elements separate. So when it's that, in that reflection of there is no thing that comes to be, but there's no real thing that is coming into existence and and is established permanently. But in the present reality, there is no thing, either coming to be or ending. So what does that say about birth and death? And as Lumpur says here, um, <clears throat> we we believe we have been born. And again, the thinking might say, well, of course I have. You know, 2nd of September, 1956, I was born. It's my birthday. I was born. Um, and, but uh, again, that's from the, um, the point of view of, of worldly perceptions. But the mind that was aware of a body being born wasn't being born. <laughs> so, you know, the mind of a, the, is a, that which is aware of, a, of a, a body dying isn't dying. It's not tied intrinsically to the world of beginnings and endings. And so, uh, in that sutra, uh, the sutra of Huineng, uh, therefore there is no birth and death to be brought to an end. So we talk about enlightenment being the ending of birth and death. It's, right, it's in a way an inaccurate um, per, uh, sort of way of speaking because it's not that there, there is an existent birth and death that stops and doesn't start again, but rather the perspective of those, um, those forms changes and that the, the mind is in, in, instead is in that embodying the quality of timelessness and awareness. So that's why we say the Dhamma is timeless. Akaliko, apparent here and now. Sanditiko, Akaliko. So these reflections on time can be a little bit mind-bending, but that's okay. We're in the right environment for that. It's safe here. <laughs> we, are, we, are, we have got clocks, <laughs> but it is very helpful to reflect on on time and how absolutely real. I mean, I'm a bit of a punctuality freak as well, so I can, uh, 
along with reflections on timelessness, there's the uh, urge to be on time. Uh, and, uh, but it, it, uh, it, it illuminates the, the solidity that we give to, I was born, I am so many years old, this is the date today, it is this time, and how obvious and fixed and real that seems to be. And this is trying to put that in perspective and say, well, that's just the appearance of things. Like we say, the sun comes up in the morning. We're just past the spring equinox. So now the, there's more daylight than nighttime. Um, and the sun comes up. Well, the sun doesn't come up, does it? The earth turns. So it looks like the sun comes up, but it's only because of the turning of the earth that the sun comes up and goes down. So again, it seems completely obvious. Well, the sun comes up in the morning. Duh. And so you take the position, you leave the surface of the earth and you hover out in space and then you can see the earth spinning and the, the sun is just where it is. It's not, not rising or setting, it's just where it is. And so that the rising and setting of the sun depends on the turning of the earth. So similarly, birth and death of the body depends on attachment to the body. If the mind is not attached to the body, then just like the earth spinning in space, then the body is born, the body dies. So what's that got to do with anything real? It's a whole different perspective. It's changing the, the view on that, those beginnings and endings and those changing of forms. Revenge, also, is based on remembering wrongs done to you in the past and holding on to them. There's a desire to get even, and vengeance has a kind of attractiveness to it. They should be punished. They shouldn't get away with it. They should be made to suffer. They should pay the price. I began to watch this in myself, this desire to get even, this desire to make them pay, and realize that it too is based on memory. By putting memory into context through awareness, however, one can see what it really is, that it arises and ceases according to conditions. If you don't cling to memory, it's very brief. It flashes through consciousness and does not sustain itself. Nevertheless, a good memory makes you feel good, and a bad memory makes you feel bad. That is very clear and obvious. Since there is only the here and now in terms of experience, of course, the past in this moment is just a memory. So try to put that into the perspective of perception. There's nothing wrong with memory. It's actually a great gift. So it isn't a matter of trying to wipe it out or destroy it, but rather of investigating its nature and not being enslaved and tortured by it. The point to realize is that the past is a memory. By reflecting in this way, I was able to put the perception of time into context and began to see it quite differently. Awareness, in the sense of awakened, here and now, this intuitive sense of embracing the moment, it's not a divisive function of the mind. It's not a judging faculty. It isn't something that decides which is the best and which is the worst or takes an interest in quality or quantity. But it is discerning, so it knows things as they are. And the wisdom comes from that discernment. The critical mind is cultivated through thinking and dwelling on the quality of things. This is more beautiful than that. This is a man, that's a woman. This is a Buddhist, that's a Christian. Everything is divided up and compared. And there are preferences. You like some things better than others. Some conditions you detest. This kind of emotional range arises from dwelling on the quality of conditioned experience. The reality of conditioned experience, however, is seen when there is awareness. We have the ability to discern, to know that it is 
like this. Now this Pali word tatata that we use is sometimes translated as as isness or suchness. It's a word that points to the present reality without having to define, name or qualify the present reality. So it can help you to see that it is like this rather than I don't like the way it is. With the reactive mind when something unpleasant happens we think I don't like this, it shouldn't be like this. This is the reactive pattern. With awareness, however, the reality of that same experience, the conditions you're experiencing and the emotional reactions you are having are all included. And the only thing you can say about them is that it is the way it is. That's not a description or a definition. It's just a pointer, a way of using thought to recognize that right now being frightened, upset or confused is like this. And this is not the same final judgment in a fatalistic way. It's the reality of this moment. It can only be like this, the way it is. For most of us, there is a great deal of concern for the future. We have this idea that the future holds all possibilities and all potentialities, all potentialities for happiness, success, wealth, fame, and all the best. But with each potentiality goes its opposite. Success with failure, praise with blame, and so on in terms of the eight worldly dhammas. The future, therefore, is the unknown, isn't it? There is possibility, potentiality, probability. All the could-bes and might-bes, the hopes and dreads and anticipations, these are the mental states we create around the future. However, the way I see it, especially as a Buddhist monk, I don't need to plan or anticipate the future, because it is the unknown. The life of the Buddhist monk is about not creating certainty and making great plans. It's meant to be a flowing lifestyle rather than a controlled one. We can make a problem out of anything, actually. People generally want security, safety, certainty, things to go well, harmony and peace. And yet the worldly mind, sorry, and yet to the worldly mind, peace and harmony are quite boring, actually. Conflict is exciting. To have a quarrel in your group, a real problem to solve or a great issue to face sometimes gives a sense of, this is important, this is real. But as we develop the way of awareness, there's no seeking things, no functioning from desire. We see the difference between awareness and desire, even the desire to be enlightened, to get rid of faults and defilements, to have perfect harmony and peace, to have the ideal monastic community, or the ideal society. Our idealism tends to make us unhappy with the way things are, doesn't it? We always think there's something wrong when we have that, the attitude that things should be like the ideal. Awareness, then, allows us to see what we're doing. It allows us to recognize that we are creating desire even for peace and harmony. If I'm not aware and do not discern the way things are, I get caught in preferences. I don't want conflict and confusion. So when conflict and confusion arise, I think, oh, I don't want this, I don't like this. Monks and nuns shouldn't be like this, they should be peaceful saintly and perfect, then I can only be critical of them because none of them is saintly, none of them is the ideal monk or nun, and nor am I. But that's the way it is, isn't it? This movement, this flux, this energy that we experience through consciousness and through the senses is like this. <clears throat> the, the word that Lumpur quotes here, tatata, so I've been um, mentioning that a few times in the morning reflections, and uh, it's sort of partner um, uh, to the partner of suchness is emptiness. So 
sunyata means emptiness, tatata means suchness. And so uh, in Ajahn Buddha Dasa's reflections on the, these different characteristics of existence, these, uh, two, these two, are, are two amongst the, la- the sort of top three of his nine, uh, nine qualities that he lists. And so, uh, whereas emptiness, looking at the emptiness of all conditions, the way that uh, every thought, feeling, perception, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, every emotion, every mood, every intention, every mind state, is every physical object is void of intrinsic substance, void of self and what belongs to a self. They're, they're all empty. The five khandhas are all sunya. <clears throat> and similarly, the partner to that is suchness, tatata, or as uh, Lumpur translates it here as well, as isness. Tat means thus or such. <clears throat> so literally means thusness or, or isness or as isness. It's this way. And uh, as he as he points out, it's um, uh, it's not a description or a definition. It's just a pointer. Uh, it's uh, a, a a way of referring to the the presence of a quality without uh, say any kind of fixed definition. So it's it's fuzzy. <laughs> uh, but uh, when you say, well, it's this way. What, what way is it? You know, the, the thinking mind wants a definition or a form. But the and I know some people in the Buddhist world they they uh, they cringe at the word suchness. It's like oh, it's not a Buddhist concept. You don't Buddha never used that word, but he did <laughs> a few times. So. But uh, uh, I feel that, it, that Ajahn Buddha Dasa's reflections on this is very very helpful because in a sense, looking at the world of experience, like the perception of a book or the sound of a word or the feelings of the body or a, 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 the touch of of the fingers on wood. <clears throat> you can say, it's, it's when we reflect that it's empty, it's sunya, then say, yeah, it's empty of substance, but it's this way. So that, so the reflection on sunyata, emptiness, is saying no to the, the solidity and permanence of a thing or a, an experience. Whereas suchness is saying, yes, there is something, there is a quality, there is, a, there is, a, there is this. And uh, to the thinking mind, it's well, either it's there or it's not there. Either there's something or there's nothing. It's either one or zero. And uh, it's pointing to the fact that, well, the universe has got more than ones and zeros in it. And that um, the the point is to help the mind to break free of its habitual judgments and attachments and, and structures. And so that the um, the the... If the mind dwells on the empty side of it and says, no, 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 then you can tilt too far to the negation. If it, uh, if it emphasizes the, the suchness, saying, yes, 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 it can tilt too far to that um, eternalism or, or making things more substantial than they really are. But we, to, to remain balanced or to sustain a, the middle way, then both of them are needed. Like having a left eye and a right eye, you can see three-dimensional objects. You can, the mind can create a three-dimensional image so you need yes and no. Everything matters, nothing matters. Uh, everything is self, no, nothing is self. So that it's not a binary, uh, say, um, issue, but rather by taking those two points of view, then uh, just like with the, uh, the eyes, being able to have a, uh, create a three-dimensional image, if you have just one eye, you can only create a two-dimensional image. If you have two together, then it gives depth. So that... Uh, I feel that's a, a good way of, of, say, working with these qualities of, of suchness and emptiness. That 
Uh, and even though that vagueness or the blurriness of, of those terms might be um, upsetting for people who like a particularly sort of crisp, tidy uh, conceptual maps, I feel that in terms of contemplative life and to using the, the, um, the practice to really uh, awaken, to, for, which is the purpose that it's, it's for, rather than coming up with perfect definitions, then the, these are, are a, a, a very helpful pair. And the, the third one of the, of the, the triad, uh, emptiness, suchness, the third one is atamayata, which literally means not made of that. And so, <clears throat> again, Ajahn Buddha Dasa referred to this as the, the ultimate Buddhist concept. Because, uh, in a way, what you're doing is um, the, uh, the reflections on Sunyatara are saying, saying no to that. The reflections on suchness are saying yes to that. And Atamata is saying there is no that. <laughs> there's, only, there's only this. The, the only reality is the Dhamma itself. So that even in uh, uh, creating a subject here that's aware of an object there is is let go of, so that that quality of atamayata is the mind sustaining a, a subjectless, objectless awareness. It's not creating a, a world of, of this and that, a, a here and a there, a subject-object duality. So, as I was saying earlier, through the power of meditation, I found this sense of timelessness. Time seems to have passed so quickly since I first became a monk, and came to live in England. When I think in terms of the worldly mind, it doesn't seem I've been here that long, actually, and yet it has been 28 years. Now, 28 years sounds like a long time. I've never before lived anywhere for 28 years. Then last week I turned 70. People kept asking me about that. I said, I don't feel old yet. The perception to my mind is that 70 is old, and yet the reality of a 70-year-old body is but I can't say I feel old. I can't relate to myself as feeling like the perception of 70 suggests. And actually, it's just the way it is. We can see how conditioned ways of thinking influence how we experience life. And if we don't liberate ourselves from that, if we just continue to operate from the conditioning of the mind, we only experience life through the limitation of some perception we have. Some conditioned reaction, some habit. Liberation, then, is through awareness, and that is not a created state. Awareness does not have form, which is why trying to become aware is not awareness. Most of us have probably been through some kind of struggle with the word awareness or mindfulness, and then, thinking we've understood it, tried to become it. I remember trying to make myself do things mindfully. This inner voice would say, be mindful now, do it mindfully, mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. You get tired of hearing the word, in fact. It's terribly good advice, right on the mark. But what does it really mean? What is mindfulness? In trying to find the proper definition of a word like that, we might find ourselves going to the texts and dictionaries to look it up. What did Ajahn Chah say? What did Ajahn Mun say? We want to know what the authorities, how the authorities define it. The reality is, of course, that it cannot be defined. And please note, this was in 2004, so this is before the mindfulness movement took over the, uh, the, kind of, uh, <clears throat> the space that it occupies today. So this is even more relevant now. <laughs> so 
you see mindfulness everywhere. Mindfulness or awareness is knowing, isn't it? It is a direct knowing, imminent, here and now. It is being fully present, attentive to this present moment, as is. But defining mindfulness tends to make it into something. And then it's no longer mindfulness, is it? Mindfulness is not a thing. It is a recognition, an intuitive awareness. It's awareness without grasping. With this recognition, we have perspective on the conditions that we experience in the present, our thoughts, identities, and the conditioning we have. Concentration, on the other hand, is usually on a form. We choose an object and then put our full attention onto it. In contrast to mindfulness, which is formless and immeasurable and does not seek a form. That's why describing mindfulness or awareness leads to the wrong attitude. Terms like wake up or awakening or pay attention are not definitions. They are suggestions to trust in this moment, to be present, to be here and now. The way the scriptures read in the Theravadan schools tends to create an incredible ambition to attain particular states. I get quite despairing sometimes within my own tradition. The Western mind in particular can be very ambitious, and the sense of one's self-importance seems to emphasize that by wanting to attain the jhanas, absorptions. This is the big thing. Wanting to attain stream entry and arahantship. I can understand this to a certain extent, of course, because I'm also conditioned to wanting to attain things. I was brought up in the States where your whole life was about attaining something. So for me, that was the most obvious way of dealing with it. You get the jhanas, you do vipassana, you go through the four stages, and on and on like that. I can understand it, and I have no problem with the concept. I've noticed, however, that operating from this sense of wanting to achieve and attain just reinforces cultural conditioning. It is not reflected, but tends to reinforce it instead. The point is to recognize with awareness how one actually holds such concepts. Uh, again, this is a very uh, regular theme of, um, that uh, Lumpur uh, points to, that particularly with, a, with a active thinking minds, we, we take a, a quality like mindfulness, and then we, make it, uh, we take the name, the concept of it, and then we attach to the concept, <laughs> rather than actually being awake, being mindful of how the mind wants to be mindful, or wants to attain something. And so that over and over and over again, countless times, Lumpur would say, uh, if your mind says, I want to get jhana, be mindful of that, I want to get jhana feeling. <laughs> Don't believe that, that there's something that is a valid statement of reality or that you have to believe in or push away or do anything with, that it's knowing what's present here uh, and uh, being aware of, oh, here is the mind saying, I want to get jhana, I want to be a stream enterer. And that that moment of, of awakeness, that is the path and that that is where peace and uh, that is where fulfillment is found is in that oh look here's the mind saying i want to be a stream enterer that thought arises and passes away here and now so any questions reflections thoughts on that Uh, well, it's, it's a good question. Um, 
the whole way that culturally we make effort, you know, the, the um, Western mindset in particular, is very goal oriented, and um, that we we uh, also making effort is very personal. I've got to do, I've got to achieve, I should, I must, and so um, the uh, one of the things that again Lumpur Sumedh has reflected on a lot is that when he was living. Uh, with a, a community of Thai people, that it was really striking to him how people related to the instructions they got from from Lumpur Chao, from the teachings, in a different way. Whereas he would, I've got to, I should, I must, and this sort of uh, locking onto that um, you know, kind of Protestant work ethic. You know, I've got to do this to get that, and if I'm not doing it, I'm not, you know, not doing it. Hard, I'm not trying hard enough, and I'm not doing my bit, and I should. I think we're we're unconscious of the degree to which the, that Western conditioning of how we make effort, how we point the attention towards a goal, and how we, we, we how we work really, is is so personal and and so um, a desire driven, and that um, I think it, in the uh, uh, in the, the what you have in the suttas and, and the um, the teachings is is pointing out how things work, but it's also the 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 guidance on how to in, how to apply right effort how to engage this is quite different so it's it's like to a different mindset um, the same word the kind of same words uh, put into a different mix have a different effect you see what I mean well like the the, the words of the suttas so that to a say a, an Indian mindset in the time of the Buddha when it and he says you know you should do this and do this and do this and to, to um, John or this level of insight or whatever, that the way that the the mind of the Buddha's listeners picks that up and applies it is different than the way that uh, a Western mind, conditioned with achievement orientation and personal kind of uh, individual excellence and uh, uh, and the way the mind takes, uh, say, competitiveness and um, uh, takes hold of a of a project or an idea or the way that it works and. And uh, creates um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a self-view around that, and a lot of stressing. So it's rather like uh, the the atmosphere in the West. Like if you if you strike a match in a in a, a room <coughs> like this, which doesn't have any petrol fumes in it, you, know, you light the match, and the match will just burn, and then the, the fuel runs out. If the if the atmosphere was filled with petrol fumes, you light a match, and boom, the whole thing blows up. So Western minds are sometimes like the sort of filled with petrol fumes. You, know, you just light a match and boom, the whole thing blows up. So frequently, Ajahn Chah would have to tell the, the Western monks, like, chill, cool, you know, <laughs> cool it. That they would tr- be trying so hard and so kind of ardent, they'd be kind of injuring themselves. And, you know, and uh, so he frequently telling these people to, to lighten up. Take your foot off the pet, you know, off the, <laughs> off the accelerator, just to to, to uh, have a more of a balanced attitude. One of one um, one one novice, uh, West uh, British novice, who was at what Pananachat, um, he was so uptight and so kind of wired about his practice and what he should do and shouldn't do. Um, Lumpur Chah's advice to him was eat like a pig and sleep a lot. <laughs> <laughs> really, that was his advice. Eat like a pig and sleep a lot. Like just chill, you know. Don't do anything else. 
That's not for everyone. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> okay, that's enough for today.